The following lecture was delivered at the 15th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Atlanta, Georgia, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson now presents his lecture, Is Loving Yourself a Mitzvah? Our theme today is a very interesting theme. It's a question. Is self-love a mitzvah? I remember when I was a yeshiva student, I once went to a lecture about self-love and the speaker explained how the greatest contradiction to loving others, what's the opposite of loving others? The opposite of loving others, everything has an opposite. The opposite of hot is cold, right? The opposite of a hot cup of coffee is a, an iced coffee, or maybe no coffee. Yeah, yeah, it's hot. So this person was saying in the lecture that the opposite of loving another, loving your spouse, loving your friend, loving a stranger, loving anybody, the opposite of that is loving yourself. So not only is it not a mitzvah, it's somewhat of the opposite of a mitzvah because it's a mitzvah to love another. As the Torah says, one of the most famous verses of the Torah in Leviticus, you should love your fellow like yourself. So if self-love is the antithesis of loving another, so I understood that self-love must be something that's pretty close to a sin. I didn't like what I heard then, and I still don't like it with many years have passed. As I was sitting there, I was like, this just does not resonate. I don't know. There's something off. I didn't like it. I understood the concept that if self-love is misconstrued, it can be a contradiction to loving another. But how can you say self-love is a terrible thing when the Torah concludes the verse, you should love your fellow like yourself? <laughs> if loving yourself was such a bad thing, then this would be a horrible reference. You should love your fellow like you don't love yourself. It means, in other words, that the Torah saw and predicated the mitzvah on the fact that there was self-love. You should love your fellow like you love yourself. But if I hate myself, how can I love my fellow? I was once uh, sitting at a Shabbos table. This is quite a few years ago. And I raised a question at the table. There are 613 mitzvahs in Judaism. Which do you think is the hardest? I don't know, maybe a strange question to raise at a Shabbos table. But I was thinking about it. I wanted to hear everybody's experience. Which is the most difficult mitzvah? 613 mitzvahs. Huh? Shiluah Hakan, really? It's difficult? Which part? 
there's no mitzvah to find a bird. Kiyikare, if you chance upon it. So that's not a... What do you think is the most difficult mitzvah? In, 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 in the circles of the, the Lithuanian yeshiva world, what's known as the Litvish yeshiva world, they say over that the Vilna Gon said, the Vilna Gon said that the hardest mitzvah is, <laughs> this is classic, huh? The hardest mitzvah is, the Torah commands you for eight days to be happy 24 hours a day. Sukkot. <laughs> so he said, that's the hardest mitzvah, to be happy for eight days straight, 24 hours a day. Probably Hasidim would have a different response. But this was an interesting take. <laughs> be happy eight days straight, 24 hours. I'm not asking you one hour a day. One hour a day, okay. One of my children answered that the hardest mitzvah is you should love your fellow like yourself. So I asked my boy, he was a little boy, why do you find this mitzvah so hard? And I kid you not, he looked at me, he said, because this mitzvah requires you to love yourself. And that's not easy. <laughs> oh, you can understand how all the alarms went off in my brain, right? <laughs> my amygdala is still... <laughs> It's still firing. It uh, sounds from that night. What level of awareness? So we have to define what is self-love and why self-love is not just a mitzvah, but it's one of the foundations of Judaism. So I'm going to begin with a story. It's a story that was shared by the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, known as Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson. I have the privilege of carrying his name. Why, why is Yosef Yitzchak? I was named after the sixth Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, who passed away in 1950 in New York, 71 years ago. And he shared this story on Simchas Torah, 1935. You're going to be responsible to remember all the dates, so make sure you write it all down. This was Simchas Torah, 1935. He was living in Poland. In 1940, he escaped Poland and arrived to New York. He escaped Nazi-occupied Warsaw. But in 1935, Polish Jewry was obviously flourishing with three million Jews in Poland, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe lived in Poland at the time. He escaped Soviet Russia. So Simchas Torah, he spoke. And there's a transcript of some of the things he said. And he shared there a very moving story. He had a teacher whose name was Chanoich Hendel Kugel. They called him Reb Hendel. Hendel is a classic Yiddish name. Hendel, you never heard the name Hendel? It's a moment. It's, a, it's an old Yiddish name. Huh? Mendel and Hendel, yeah. It, it, they match, yeah. Could be Mendel's brother, yeah. Mendel's brother was Hendel, yeah. <laughs> Come to think about it, there were two brothers that I knew, Mendel and Hendel. There was a Jew, his name was Hendel Lieberman. He was a famous Hasidic artist, wonderful artist. He died in 76, and he had a brother by the name of Mendel, 
who had a different last name, Futafas. That's because of Russian stuff, but not our not lectures today, not beyond our beyond our realm today. But in any case, this Jew's name was Hendel. He was a very warm and fiery and passionate and loving person. And he was one of the mentors of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, who was the father-in-law of the Rebbe, of the most recent Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he was one of his mentors. He taught him, he, he learned a lot from him, he observed him. And he was a legend in the Chabad world, not so much because of his mind, but because of his heart. And the Rebbe, that's some Chistorah 35, shared a memory that he himself heard from his mentor, Rebbe Hendel. This was decades already after he passed. But, so this is something that he really shared. It was first experience, what he heard from the person who had happened with. And he said, you know, he grew up, and he grew up in a wonderful community. This is Tsarist Russia of 19th century. And he was a really warm and passionate Jew. And he was exposed to the world of Hasidic spirituality in Russia, which was not his background, not his family background. And there was a rabbi, his name was Reb Zisha. Zusha, Zusha, you heard. Zusha, right, okay. So they called him Reb Zusha Kornitsa. He was a rabbi of a city. And Reb Hendel came, came close to him. And Reb Zusha Kornitsa was a Chabad Hasid. And Reb Hendel would watch him and learn from him, and he was mentored by him. And he realized, this is what he told the, the Rebbe, who said it over publicly at a Simchas Torah gathering, that he felt that the life of a chassid is not for him, because it's too difficult. It's just not for him, it's too much, it's, it's, it's not for him. And then he says, he watched Abzusha Kurnitzer throughout his life, throughout his days and weeks and months. He was a rabbi of a city. He was a really good mentor. He was a real rabbi, a spiritual leader. He was there for the people. He was a scholar. He was authentic. He was available to the people emotionally, intellectually. But he says one day, he watched Abzusha wake up in the middle of the night to do what they used to call tikkun chatzos. Jews often would wake up midnight, especially Kabbalists and mystics, and they would plead for cosmic redemption. From midnight on, they would meditate and study and learn, and then they would prepare for their prayers in the morning. And he watched them wake up in the middle of the night and do the prayers for redemption and for cosmic rebuilding and for gula, and then learn himself throughout mid from midnight all the way till sunrise when he went to pray. And he watched us. And usually when you see a rabbi, a leader, you see the leadership part, but you don't see people vis-a-vis -vis themselves, right? It's always, everybody always is interested. You see sometimes great people, leaders, celebrities. What is their life like on the inside? And sometimes the more beautiful on the outside, the more rotten on the inside, right? The better it looks on Facebook and Instagram, very often the worse it looks inside the house. Not always, but often, because it could be a cover-up. So it's always interesting to know, you know, the person from the inside. So he was watching Reb Zisha, who was this great spiritual leader, learning himself, and it left such an impression on him because he saw the power of the person on the inside. In the morning, he said, he saw a woman come to him because somebody was sick in her family. And she came to the rabbi to seek counsel and advice. 
and he watched this man, Reb Zusha, starting to sob with the lady. He was crying with her. Then later in the day, somebody needed a favor. So he went to the person who can help him, and he pleaded with him to help this other person, the stranger. At this point, Reb Hendel was, was sold on this man. He said, such a person? And he came over to him and he said, I think I want to be a chassid. But give me the easy version, not the hard version. So what he tells him, this is the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe is saying this over in 1935 in Poland, to his own chassid. So Reb Zisha says, it's not hard at all. It's very easy. He says, what do you mean? And Reb Zusha Kornitzer tells Reb Hendel, that the foundation of all chassidus, of all chassidus is Avas Yisrael. The foundation of all chassidus is love. Love of another person, love of another Jew. Quote in Yiddish, okay? The Eshtazach von chassidus is Avas Yisrael. The foundation of chassidus is love, love of another person, love of another Jew. And this is what he explained to him, how you love. And then he says, I quote, Translation, if the foundation of chassidus is love of another Jew, you're also a Jew. So you have to make sure to love yourself. Because you're also a Jew, so you have to make sure to love yourself. And in order to be able to love yourself, you have to expel from yourself the voices that are alien to Judaism. Every person has with inside themselves what's called those voices within me that are alien to my Judaism, to my holiness. It says you have to expel that part or at least neutralize it in order to be able to find self-love. So here, and Reb Hendel became one of the greatest Chabad Hasidim as a result of this conversation. And he became the mentor of the six Lubavitcher, one of the great mentors of the six Lubavitcher Rebbe, and is still a legend in the history of Chabad, of Russia. This statement didn't just affect him, but it really changed his life. And I would like, over the next few moments, to explain how I understand this. What Reb Zisha was telling Reb Hendel, I can't tell you I understand it, but at least what I take out of it, at least I think one aspect of it that seems to be an authentic interpretation of what he's saying here. There are two ways in which we can talk about self-love. Really two very different ways. Somebody once told me, as I quoted in the beginning about the lecture I heard, but somebody once told me, self-love, it sounds like narcissism. Reb Zisha was telling Reb Hendel that it's the foundation of spirituality. <laughs> so is narcissism the foundation of spirituality? That's pretty sad, right? What is going on? But the truth is, it's always about definition. How you describe something, how you explain something. Of course, if you describe self-love as meaning, I couldn't care less about anybody's feelings. I couldn't care less about anybody's world. I couldn't care less about anybody's emotions. You know the t-shirt that reads, I'm very easy to get along with once you learn to worship me. 
or somebody once said about somebody, he's a self-made man and he worships his creator. If that's how you translate self-love, nobody else exists. Nobody's feelings exist. The world is my mirror. They said the way you drown a narcissist is you put mirrors on the bottom of the ocean. The world is my mirror. Then, of course, self-love can be very destructive. But the truth is that's not self-love. It's the opposite of self-love. Whenever I need to cut out people, whenever I must be the center of attention always, it's not because I love myself. It's because I hate myself. It's because I don't exist. It's because deep inside there's no core. It's because probably one way of looking at it is as a child, when I stopped experiencing the attachment, the connection, the love, allowed me to feel that I really exist and I really matter, I had to substitute it with the search for attention and validation, which is a fake substitute for love. I couldn't get the love anymore, but I desperately need it. So what do I do? For the rest of my life, I seek attention. And whatever I can do to get that attention, to get that validation, I will do it in the mistaken belief that this will substitute for love. Isn't it tragic that sometimes a person could live their entire life based on this camouflage substitute, which really never compensates for what they're looking for because nothing could compensate for the truth of what you're searching for. And sometimes some of my choices and decisions that I make are based on these wounds that I never really addressed. Self-love, real self-love, is not only a mitzvah, it's a sacred mitzvah, and in many ways it's the foundation of all the other mitzvahs. Because what does self-love really mean? Why was he telling him, you're a Jew, so you have to love yourself, but first you have to expel that which is antithetical to holiness? What it really means is that I have to be able to go in and discover what the self is, what the self is that I'm supposed to love, and why is it so hard? Love your fellow like yourself is so important because if I don't know what self-love is, how can I ever know what loving you is? I can't. I can't. Back to my example, back to my previous example. This child, who when he was six years old, or she was six years old, could not feel love anymore. King David says in Psalms, we say it every day at this time of the year, Psalms 27, my mother and father have abandoned me. He had to find that love from God. He couldn't get it from his parents. That's what King David writes. It's a very powerful psalm. We say it throughout the month of Elul and part of Tishrei. If a person, if a child couldn't get that, and they really had to substitute that need with fake love, which we call attention. So instead of looking for love, I'm looking for attention because that becomes my version of love. To open myself up to my real need may be too painful. So I hide it. I don't only hide it from you. I hide it from me too. I don't even know it. It may not even be conscious. 
It sits in the body. This trauma sits in the body. It sits in the brain. It paralyzes me on every level. But I may be a talented and functional person, and therefore I create a substitute life. And it's amazing to see, and I have to say this, and you'll forgive me, I'm still a very young man. I consider myself a baby. But the, I'm a little older than I used to be. That was brilliant, no? <laughs> it was, by the way, but I won't, we won't get into it. The, the, the older I get, the more I see how when we live in our traumas, we, we almost have no choices. Our choices are so limited. Um, it's one of the most beautiful interpretations I saw from one of the great Hasidic masters, Rabbi uh, Nochem of Chernobyl. He was a student of the Baal Shem. He has a book called Mo'ire Nayim. And he asks the famous question, how can God take away from Pharaoh free choice? God tells Moses, I am going to make Pharaoh stubborn and he will not let you go. Let my people go. No, 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 I will not let you go. You think it's Pharaoh's doing it? God says, no, Ani Achazek is slave Pharaoh. I will tighten his heart. I will make him obstinate and stubborn, refusing to let you go. So why are you punishing him? It's like punishing a lioness for chasing and killing her prey to feed her cubs. <laughs> the genetic, her genetic makeup. You forced Pharaoh to do this, so why are you punishing him? It's a good question, no? Maimonides asks it, Nachmanides asks it, all the basic biblical commentators ask it. Here is one of the great interpretations of one of the great Hasidic masters, the Marianayim, and he says, in the portion of Shmos of Eira, he says as follows, he says, that's exactly the point. Why did the Jews have to leave Egypt? Why did they have to leave exile? Why did they have to leave the domain of Pharaoh? Why? We say, well, they were physical slaves. That's true. Why do we remember the Exodus every single day? Because the Exodus was not just a geographical story. It's a psychological story. What were they leaving? What was the emancipation of Egypt about? And he says this. Living in an Egyptian exile under Pharaoh means that you don't have choice. That's exactly what subjugation means. I live in a story that defines me, and it defines me so profoundly to the point I don't make choices anymore. Even if I make choices, they are so narrow and limited. Back to my example, which is just one example, there are millions of others, but they all somehow connect to this basic fact that so often at a young age, Something happened, one event or a cumulative events over days, months, weeks, or years, not necessarily one traumatic event that causes my deepest core to go into hiding, to go into prison. I now create a substitute self, but it is so restricted, it is so inauthentic, it is so shallow, it is so superficial, it is so much about self-protection and self-defenses. In other words, it's about self-hate and self-shame. And now I may be married, I may be successful, I may have money, I may be popular, but at my core, I am completely, completely absent. There's like a shell of me that operates instead of my internal core. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Or I'm the only Meshuggah in this place? You don't have to all raise your hands. 
but I suspect there are one or two people who know what I'm talking about, right? Now, the moment I'm aware of this, wow, I'm already in an emancipated space, even if I'm still struggling with it terribly. But the awareness of this is so enriching. The lack of awareness of this is really what is debilitating because I don't even know that I don't know. <laughs> I don't mind ignorance. What I mind is when ignorance is a substitute for knowledge. <laughs> I love, you know, sometimes I read these columns and you'll have this new mother who has like a two-month-old baby with a carriage and she's giving advice about how to deal with teenagers because of her expertise with education. Because, you know, she has a baby and she's taking care of the baby and she knows how to deal with the baby. And you're like, honey, you mean well? <laughs> I don't mind ignorance, but when ignorance becomes the substitute for enlightenment, for wisdom, we can all deal with our traumas. But when my trauma suddenly, suddenly assumes the role of religion or righteousness or indignation, or frustration, or hatred, or anger, when you become the victim for something that is broken inside of me, that's the tragedy. Pharaoh is in exile. He doesn't even know it. The man has no choices. How could he have choices? Of course he has to enslave everybody. He is enslaved. He is the first slave. People who don't know what freedom is will force others. They will become tyrants. If I can't respect my freedom, I could never respect your freedom. I don't even know what it means. If I can't have real compassion for myself, send them my regards. If I can't really, if I can't really cherish my inner divine core, I cannot cherish your core. I could listen to every lecture in the world. You can go to every workshop, every seminar. You can read books. The problem is that these things were absorbed not through books and not through lectures. So there's no way of releasing them through books and lectures. If they were absorbed when I was 19 and I read a book and it gave me information, I could read another book and expel it. But these things are ingrained sometimes from a, in a very deep place, from a very young age. And if I'm not ready to be able to go there and expose myself to it, I'll never be able to release it. And then my choices in life are so narrow because I am relating to everybody from a very restricted place. So Reb Zisha was telling Reb Hendel, here is the deal. The foundation of all Judaism is love. To be able to experience that love, you have to be able to really love yourself. To be able to love yourself, you have to be able to identify those voices in you that are antithetical to holiness. What are those voices? What is the voice of holiness? What is the antithetical voice? The voice of holiness, the voice of Torah, the voice of Judaism inside of me states the following. It states that my posture, my physical posture, my emotional posture, my psychological posture and my spiritual posture are essentially a manifestation of the divine light in this world. Or to quote Jacob in his dream, I am a ladder etched on the ground, but its top reaches heaven. That ladder is the human posture. 
that ladder, your feet are on the ground, boots on the ground. You're a grounded person. You're on the earth. You're part of earth. And when my posture is straight, and I don't mean physically, physically too, but psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, it becomes a conduit for the divine flow of energy through me. Self-love then is really loving my true self, which is a conduit for infinity at every moment. And if I cannot cherish that, if I cannot really embrace that, if I can't have compassion for it, there's no way I could fulfill my mission in this world because a part of me becomes suppressed or oppressed. It's the month now when we blow the shofar. There's a fascinating prophecy by Isaiah. Isaiah 58, Yeshaya Nun Ches, it's the Haftorah of Yom Kippur. God tells the prophet Isaiah, Yeshaya, Horem kashoifer kailecha. Lift up your voice like a shofar, like a ram's horn, and share with my children their sins and transgressions. And the Maggid of Mizrich asks, why lift up your voice like a shofar? Why not just lift up your voice and chastise the people about their sins? And he says, you don't chastise people if you can't be like a shofar. What's the definition of a shofar? A shofar doesn't produce its own sound. A shofar is a channel. I blow... It goes through the shofar, it resonates through the shofar, it comes out from the other side of the shofar, and it resonates far and wide. You never chastise by raising your voice. You chastise by turning your voice, making sure you're like a shofar. I'm a conduit. A conduit for what? A conduit for the divine flow of love. The divine blow. God blew in a soul into Adam. That happened on Rosh Hashanah. That's why we blow shofar. So he blows that sound and it goes through me as a channel. Elisha was one of the great prophets, but he was in a bad mood. He couldn't prophesize. He said, This is in the Hebrew Bible in the book of Kings. Bring me a musician. As the musician began playing, the hand of God dwelled on Elisha and he can begin to prophesize. The Hebrew words are literally it means when the musician began singing. But the selection of words in Hebrew is somewhat awkward, so the Magad of Mizrich says the real translation is when the menagain became the niggin, when the musician becomes the song, when the musician becomes like the nagin, like the musical instrument. The violin is a vehicle, the cello is a vehicle, the guitar, the piano, these instruments, there is no toxic voice inside of them undermining them, they are channels for the music. They have no self-consciousness that separates them from the music. Can you become the song? Can I be like the musical instrument? But to be like the musical instrument, I need the deepest self-love. I have to be able to really, really embrace my inner divine infinite power. If I doubt it for a moment, I hate myself. And then I could never be a channel. Then I become a blockage. The voices, the music get stuck inside of me. It's like a chauffeur. When the chauffeur is obstructed, you put something in and you blow. That's what some lives sound like. 
You want to be You want the music to flow through you with absolute transparency, with no blockages. The challenge is we do have those voices of unholiness inside of us. They're triggered every day, and they come out most in your closest relationships. When you meet somebody at the coffee stand in JLI, you haven't seen them in three years, you're not going to see them in the next three years, you're at your best behavior. But then your husband makes a comment to you. Or in fairness, your wife makes a comment to you. Or your teenage daughter before Shabbos will make a comment to you. And suddenly, suddenly, this gracious, dignified, loving, charming woman or man, you're still smiling, but inside, you're a mess. I'm a mess. There's nothing left. Obviously, something deep was triggered. What does self-love mean at that moment? So we do one of a few things. One is we right away go into that space. We get drawn into that obsessive loop, and the chatter does not stop. I see only one person nodding like this. But I hope more than one person is nodding on the inside. You don't have to nod on the outside. I don't care. Just on the inside. <laughs> it's fine. You could disagree with me as well. It's fine. I understand. This is sensitive stuff, and every person has a different experience. I could get sucked into that space and then suddenly I'm angry or I space out, I detach or I'm frustrated, I'm resentful. But what happened? I just went in to that space where that inner self-love has been completely compromised and destroyed. Another option, of course, is I can deny it. I can make believe it doesn't exist. <laughs> nothing happened. I just dismiss it. It's nothing. And of course, I find myself a day later still enraged. It's nothing. Now I'm arguing with myself 24 hours a day that it doesn't mean anything. But there's a third option. And the third option is I can accept that itself with compassion and realize that there's something I have to work on. But, but just because I have to work on it, it doesn't reduce me to that traumatic being. I can look at it. I can learn from it. I can ask myself, what is my role in it? And then I can go back to real self-love, which is appreciating myself as a conduit for the divine. Or as the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shnei writes in Tanya, every soul is a chelik elikami mal mamish. It's a fragment of the divine. It's a particle of God, if you wish. You can call it a wave of God, if that works. If you were listening to the physics lectures yesterday, you can call it a particle of God, a wave of God. It's really both. It's a particle and a wave. Depends in which state the soul is. But the soul is divine infinity in this world. That's something to love. <laughs> and when I can love that, I can love you who is also an ambassador of that divine infinity. And especially love my loved ones, whose souls and my soul have a special kinship and connection, if just because the fact that God created it as family. The Mishnah says in Sanhedrin 38, a person is obligated to say, Bishvili nivra ha'olam, the world was created for me. 
That's a statement in the Talmud. Now, is that narcissism? Imagine I come home and I tell my wife, by the way, Esti, if you haven't known this, the world was created for me. Right? You should, you should make a sign. Put a sign on yourself. The world was created for me. The only problem is the Mishnah says that to you too. So the world was created for you too. So now we have a big problem. Now, of course, of course, again, we have to put on the right lenses. I could look at it from a superficial, primitive point of view. What the rabbis are saying is something very profound. There's something at stake in your life which the entire world needs. Birth is God saying you matter. And the day you were born is the day God declared that there's something that you can contribute to the world that nobody before you or after you will ever be able to contribute. So every person is obligated to say the world was created for me. There's something about my life, my story, my work, my light, my love that I can bring to the cosmos, to the planet, that nobody before me or after me can do. Just like your life, there's something at stake, something so vital and critical about your life. That's what self-love in Judaism means. It's the real appreciation that you're not a mistake and you're not a loser. A divine wave, a divine particle is not a loser. You're not a shmata. You're not a doormat. The challenge is if I experience some form of abuse or neglect, Abuse doesn't necessarily mean abuse. Some people grew up in fine families, but there was emotional neglect, and not because of anybody's malicious choice. Some people, we only can do and live life with the tools that we have. I educate my children with the tools I have, just as my parents educated me with the tools they had, just as their parents educated them with the tools they had. We need to be able to have respect and compassion and realize people's tools are often limited. People's tools are often limited. Even if they were fine people, and they are fine people, but their tools are limited. But when I can expand my toolbox <laughs> and teach an old dog new tricks, because it's not an old dog, it's a divine spark, I can expand my horizon. I can change the course of things. In a family crucible, the ball is going down a certain trajectory, and it's going to be passed on from generation to generation until one of those children gets fed up and takes the ball and seizes the ball and makes sure that it starts traveling in a different direction. Now that takes courage and sweat and blood and tears and a good humor too. And somehow today it seems like God is summoning this change because people are exuding and emitting and expelling, trying to expel things that have been stored in the Jewish psyche for 2,000 years of exile and trauma. It's all coming out now, which is an incredible opportunity, by the way. It's an incredible opportunity. Some people are scared. There's no reason to be scared. It's an incredible opportunity for consciousness cleansing. I'm going to conclude with this story. A 
somebody told the story to the grandson of the person that happened with. The grandson was a man known as the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Benachem Mendel of Lubavitch. Somebody told him, I want to tell you a story about your grandfather, the Baal HaTanya, the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shnei Zalman, the founder of Chabad. One of his disciples decided to buy his teacher a gift. So he bought him a silver snuff box. They called it in Yiddish Shmek Tabak. You know what Shmek Tabak is? People who snuff tobacco, there's people who walk around in shul, right? That's their mitzvah. They walk around a whole Yom Kippur putting tobacco by your nose in the men's section, at least. <laughs> Lady section as well, okay. Okay, Baruch Hashem. I just don't hang out there, so forgive my ignorance. It came from a good place. So uh, he bought him this beautiful silver box for, to store the tobacco, the tabak, to smell. So the, Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe looked at it and he said, every limb and organ in the person is defined by so much temptation. We struggle with binging. We struggle sometimes with things we look at, with things we hear. There's one limb that's innocent, the nose. Nobody ever came to shul and said that I sinned last night with my nose. <laughs> Sins with your nose are limited. I mean, if you really try hard, there's stuff you can do. But uh, it's not so easy, right? Mouth, the ears, the eyes, other parts of the body are easier to sin with. I'm not going to get very graphically detailed. So he says, there's one innocent limb, the nose. So now we have to stuff this also with temptation. And he tells the Machsadik, your grandfather broke off the silver cover of the tobacco box because it could be used as a mirror. And he used it as a mirror so that his tefillin on his head would be directly between his eyes. The grandfather hears the story. And he says, my grandfather never broke things. He didn't break himself. He didn't break others. He didn't even break a silver snuff tobacco box. The man said he broke off the cover. He said, my grandfather, he wasn't capable of breaking, not himself, not others, and not even a silver box. He said, not even doimim, not even inorganic matter. There were hinges that connected the lid to the box. He removed the hinges, and the cover was available for him to use as a mirror. What's this story about? It's very deep, very deep. He said, your grandfather broke off the cover. He said, my grandfather never broke anything. He never broke himself. He never broke others. He never even broke a box. He removed the hinges. You see what he's saying? You can break yourself. You can break others. Or you could remove the hinges. What are the hinges? Hinges are addictions. I'm connected. I'm addicted. I am entrenched. I have voices of trauma. I have experiences that connect me to certain patterns. What they call today, my neural pathways are very consistent. I can't get out of them. Can I remove those hinges? Could I remove those pathways? Could I remove those connections? Can I open myself up to neuroplasticity? Can I change the way I think about things, therefore the way I behave? And when you do it 60, 70 times, you create new neural pathways. My grandfather never broke. He didn't know how to break. Never broke. He removed the hinges so that it could become a mirror for tefillin. 
Every person has voices that take you away from real self-love, from real self-compassion. But you don't have to break them. You just have to remove the hinges. I have to be able to tell myself, this is not who I am. This is not who I'm going to choose to be. I know that there's a voice inside of me that tells me this is who I am. But I'm going to choose to become the person I really am. The person I'm choosing to be. A person whose posture becomes a translucent mirror for divine love, hope, and infinity. Thank you very much. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.